Welcome to episode 6 of Sound Learnings, a podcast about education in audio, music technology and music production, sponsored by Routledge. My name is Tim Canfer, and I am joined by your other hosts, Russ Hepworth-Sawyer and Carola Bohm. I'm recording this intro in December 2021, and the recording of this episode took place in August 2020. Before we get into what may well be our best episode yet, some interesting things to let you know about. Carola, Russ and I are series editors for the new Perspectives on Education in Audio and Music Production Routledge series of books. It's a mouthful, but it abbreviates nicely to poem. We have a call for contributions for a new book called Podcasting and Education, Concepts, Controversies and Case Studies. Please check out poem-series.com and give us a shout if you're interested in contributing. My plugins, which were discussed in the last episode, were released this summer and are available at reactivebacking.com. This episode is a chat with Amlak Tafari, English-born, Jamaican and international reggae ambassador, which is definitely the best way to say it. Amlak is bass guitarist for Grammy Award-winning roots reggae band Steel Pulse. He has also played extensively with Pato Banton and a huge list of other international musicians. We talk about Amlak's rich musical past. We also talk about his route to higher education and the problems he experienced. This is an important point for us at Sound Learnings. We clearly advocate for effective higher education, and as a key part of that, we need to be unflinching in discussing core problems, in particular the snobbery and racism that we discuss with Amlak in this episode. The chat was loads of fun, though. There are some great stories of life as a true muso, as well as some insightful and challenging bits. Hope you enjoy them. The music around was the music from Jamaica and the music was the message. Yeah. If people wanted to know what was going on, they'd go to what we call a blues party. Jamaicans would gather, not just Jamaicans, Caribbean people would congregate and find out what's new, what's going on, how you're getting on. And So that was my earliest experiences of music yeah. because my mom used to have blues parties. Wow. Yeah, that's when I was really young. So I'm from a place called Handsworth. Growing up, we had a lot of blues parties going on. So my mom had another property where she used to have these blues parties right. and rent out the rooms. Everybody lived in rented accommodation those days. Yeah. And so the second house was rented out, but then come the weekend, blues party. Wow. I remember being at the blues parties when I was little. It was like the hive of activity and the music was a central part of that. Mm. There were no musicians in my family. Yeah. I don't know how this happened. It's, something divine happened when I was about 13. Well, first I was in a steel band with the church growing up. Mm. I was there for a number of years in the steel band. And somehow, when I was about 13, two parts of an acoustic guitar turned up in my back garden. (laughs) (laughs) Both parts. (laughs) And I don't know what it was like. When you were kids, everything was in the back garden. You could find anything. I have no idea where this this neck came from and this body. Mm. I found two nails that you use for plasterboard with the big heads. And I attached the neck to the body. And got some wire from an old speaker that was dismantled. Oh, wow. And I got some wire, put that together, and um, started making noises. <laughs> and when I made noises long enough and begged my mom, can I carry these two pieces of wood and this piece of copper into the house? <laughs> she finally said, okay. 
And then she turned it into a guitar when she bought me my first pack of strings. Oh, wow. <laughs> all right. Forget about intonation and all that stuff. It didn't matter. We just yeah, played. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my first instrument. From there, she went out one day. She bought me a secondhand guitar for the princely sum of £27, which was Whoa. almost car money in those days. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she gave me my start. The hardest thing for her was when I said that I didn't want to go to the church, youth club and that kind of stuff anymore because I wanted to be with a reggae band, some friends of mine. Yeah. She found that challenging. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But it, it was still that I wasn't on the streets. I wasn't running around. I really, yeah. she recognised I had a passion for playing this music stuff. She supported me. The first gig I did, I think I was, yeah, still 13. I had to sneak out of school because the guys I was in a band with, they went to another school. <laughs> so I used to sneak out of school yeah. to go and practice with these guys. And then I went the The first gig was in a church hall one lunchtime. <laughs> wow. And I went there with my new guitar saying, yeah, man, guitar, man. So when it was time to play, I didn't realize I needed a strap. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so they had to get me a chair really quickly because we had to start now. So I got a chair and put my leg on the chair and put the guitar in that. You know, it's, it's kind of been like that since. Right? <laughs> <laughs> While I was at school, I missed all the, the major fun things that kids did in the evenings. You know, going to football and going to youth clubs and all that stuff. Because I was just always practicing with a band. Yeah. That's all I knew. In the shed, yeah. in the freezing and in the in the cellar with all the mold on the wall. You try not to touch the walls. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you know, all that kind of thing. Paraffin heaters, thinking of paraffin carrying the amplifiers for a couple of miles, you know, <laughs> just walking and, you know, like at one in the morning coming back, yeah. touring. Well, what we call touring then, right, doing gigs around the country as yeah. a teenager, sleeping in the transit van, <laughs> waking up with, yep. what do you call them, icicles, ice from all kinds of directions. Yeah, You know, we went through all of that. It was tough and fun. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Put us in a position, or some of us, to realise if you want this, mm. this is what it's like. Yeah. Mm. Only a couple of the guys that I started out with earlier on actually continued in music. Right. Some of them wisely got regular paid jobs. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and then myself, I had to reinvent myself a number of times to, to keep going. Sure. Academia, mm, I was not interested before you go into that, yeah. what I find so fascinating, you can tell I'm not quite British, as you know. <laughs> My accent still gives me away. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't changed. Yeah. <laughs> Neither has mine. I actually have an accent. I didn't know I had an accent until I lived in San Diego, right? I had... Oh, right. I thought I talked like Prince Charles. Right? I had no idea. I thought my English was like, yo. Until one day somebody said to me, where are you from, man? The islands? I was like, well, England is kind of like an island. You know, British, yeah, it's kind of like an island. No, man. Barbados, right? Trinidad. I was like, what do you know about? You got a Caribbean accent, bro. I said, yeah. what? Man, I was disappointed. Man, because my Jamaican's Jamaican. Which I told Papa, you're not going to know me at all. That's why I'm technical English for the idea of a You know So that's Jamaican. Yeah. Right. She's not nothing like English. <laughs> yes. You know, that's the question that I've had because from your Jamaican heritage, music is a performer, it's not just a performer. And you mentioned that it's almost like a way of life. 
it's much more. It's about communication. It's about the community. It's about the family. And just wondered how that sort of fed into your thinking, your practice, your music, your being. Well, you know, Carola, it is exactly all of what you said. My practice, my thinking, my being. And at this point, even with the current situation and whatever's going on, you know, the music is not only all of what you said. I've also realized it's my total well-being. It's the thing that gives me that sense of gratification Mm. that I serve a purpose. You know, I've found my purpose. And in the performance, when I tour and see the people, I am serving my purpose. What I've also realized, how I am now, for for the lack of going out and doing what I do, the music is also my medicine. Mm. Yeah. It is my healer. Yeah. And I didn't really realize how much I Mm. saw the responses of people over the years when we perform. And if they enjoy themselves, they're dancing, doing all kinds of stuff, Mm. you Mm -hmm. know. But in terms of for myself, and maybe should I say from a psychological level, right, you know, It really is the all, the everything for me. And of course, you know, we can see that during the lockdown that people tended to get closer to arts and culture and music, whether that was online, whether that's listening through online players. We needed music and art to stay sane. You know, we we couldn't have survived without art. Now we just have to make sure that the government knows that if art can do that in these challenging times, then we need to keep music in the schools, we need to keep music in the universities, because that's what makes us human. Yeah, when you look at it, mentioning technology, technology has changed so much Mm -hmm. from analogue to digital. Now everything comes out of a a little white earbud or something like that, out of an MP3 player. (laughs) You know, who would have known that MP3 would become, that's the sound, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, And every kid has something with a little bud sticking out of it. So in other words... Right, the amount of music that is being listened to in this day and age, we cannot ignore it. Yeah. The only thing is, though, like keeping music in the schools, like you mentioned, I don't think the government, I don't think people are really as aware as to the benefits of actually having music in the schools, more so now mm. than ever before, because there are so many yeah. listeners of music, but not so many mm. practitioners. Absolutely. Yeah. That is hitting the nail on the absolute head. There are so many, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm tempering my language a little bit, wannabe DJs, and I don't mean that terribly because they're DJs of culture and an art form in its own right. But, you know, that is superseding when the students we see coming in, oh, I, I do this and I don't play an instrument. So we actually teach them a triad. We teach them what to do on a bass so they can interact with the other element, the players. All of, We've all started, and we were talking about that before we joined actually, yeah. we've all started on an instrument of some description or another. So it's trying to make that connection with the students. You know, you've worked a lot with youth groups and things like that from what I've read. I mean, what kind of things have you got up to with them? I had um, a couple of um, trips over to Wisconsin in the States working in detention centres. Oh, right. I've seen a couple of interesting programs that they got running over there. There was one program I worked on where they had what we would have said junior school kids. These kids were really cool. You know, you get along with them, you're going to show them some some music and beat some stuff and whatever. But the way the school was set up, these kids turn up if and when they want, whatever time they want, and leave whenever they want. Yeah? And I thought, what kind of thing is this? Mm. Well, at the same time, as much as these are really nice kids, 
these are the kids that were there because of arson, all kinds of things that you'd think like, oh my goodness. But they created something that gave them the freedom to come in and move around as freely as they want, interact as much as they want. And they're there because they want to be. Mm. You kind of had to watch your P's and Q's. You didn't want to upset them. Right? <laughs> but you didn't have to worry because they were there because they wanted to be. Hmm. Mm. I was working in some other detention centres with some young guys, 15 years old, looking at a minimum of 15 years. Oh, Two 19-year-olds wow. looking at 40 years. Ugh. But the only reason it's 40 years is because they felt so bad that they couldn't give them the 60 years that they were supposed to be getting. Man. Wow. And so when we're in there doing, you know, music stuff, then the whole judicial system, everybody will be there monitoring how they're getting on. Mm. They're going to make it back into society or how they're going to map their future within the system that they're mm. in. I'd go in and split them into groups. You're going to do some, some lyrics. You're going to do some keyboard stuff. You're going to do some bass. And how I do it, would talk about stuff, talk about my life, talk about their life, whatever they want to say. So, you know, get familiar with each other. And then I'd say, you know something? We're going to make some music today. Anybody played an instrument before? They'd be like, nah, never. And they'd be looking at it. I said, okay, I'll tell you what. Is there anybody here that can count to four? <laughs> and they'd be like, <laughs> so, okay, you can count to four. Okay, cool. But can you count to eight? <laughs> go, yeah, I said, you can count to eight. Great, we're going to make music. And so give everybody an instrument and say, right, this is your number. You're number one. You're number two, three, four. All you have to do when your number comes is just hold that thing <laughs> down there, press hard onto it, and use this finger and just go, there. <laughs> and as soon as they got it in tune and time with themselves, it's amazing to watch them realize that they're actually mm. starting to play music collectively, mm. yeah. right? So, so those kind of things is the things that I've done. I've been doing stuff in Brazil, um, all over the place, wherever the opportunity comes. Wow. Yeah. Do you go there as part of your ambassador or do you go there as part of a member of Steel Pulse or how do you get into those kinds of projects? Well, being with Steel Pulse has exposed me to a number of different types of audiences mm. and people with different kinds of projects that they're doing. And so I've always taken the opportunity to lend whatever services I can. I'm a people person, mm -hmm. so I feed off the reciprocation of, of good vibrations and positivity. So touring with Steel Pulse, I would definitely meet lots of people. People come and they say, oh, can you get your band to do this or that? And they wouldn't understand mm that Steel Pulse is a band. Mm. There are only two people that live in England. Mm. Mm. Just myself and the principal keyboard player, Salwin. The lead singer now lives in Martinique. Uh, wow. yeah. oh, right. My drummer lives in Kingston, Jamaica. Oh. The guitarist is between Hawaii and LA. He's got family both sides. Um, <laughs> who else is there? I can't remember who else in the band. A trumpet player. He's from Gwen <laughs> Stefani's band. He's from No Doubt. He lives in LA. Um, the trumpet. Oh. So... People asking me, could we get your band to whatever? I say, look here, man. I don't know about the band, but you can definitely get me. <laughs> so, so that's how I've been able to nice. mix in with people. Like, for example, I was down in Brazil last year. And so when the band was due to go down there, what I did was just make contact with a few people. 
and they said, look, we want to fly you down early. You want to come down and do um, industry talk, right? Do a workshop. And one of my friends has got a big studio down there. We used to work together from 20 something years ago. Cause I used to be in Brazil a long time ago. They'd invite me down, put a workshop together. A couple of people from Argentina come in, some Brazilian people. And I have what I call a performance ethics class. It's about how you go to work. It's about a mindset yeah. of working from the rehearsal side of things. And then when you go into the studio and when you go onto the stage, there's a mindset. Mm. Being with Steel Pulse, we hardly rehearse yeah. because of where we all live. However, we, I mean, we might do like one day or two days every couple of years or such. But when we go to soundcheck, if it's not right there, it's not making it on stage. There's none of this, it'll be all right on the night. <laughs> we go to work with a particular mindset. I call Steel Pulse the you better know band because you better know. Yeah. In other words, you do your homework. Mm. Mm. You know, when we arrive and we go to work, it's like there's no messing around this, that, that. We go to work. Mm. The lead singer, he says this, that, that. All right, and we do it. We start, we stop. He doesn't even stop, start. He just does a signal to the drummer. He goes like mm. this. And then the drummer just starts. Then he just... <laughs> I've noticed that. <laughs> if you saw our sound checks, you'd be like, wow. The discipline yeah. in my peripheral vision, I have my drummer. And as soon as he goes like this, I start. And because it's reggae, mm. we start uh -huh. on the one. And then the keyboards, mm. what we call the bang, right? <laughs> yeah, when, yeah. It, normally in music, people say the rhythm section is the drum and the bass. But in reggae, for Jamaicans, we always say the rhythm mm. is the rhythm guitar and the keyboard. So that's on yeah, two and four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he yeah. goes, ching, ching. <laughs> if he's, <laughs> it is the, you better know a band. And so that yeah. kind of focus, when I do any talks or, mm. or any workshop stuff, I try to instill that into the young people mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. many young people come from bands. And the thing about a band, mm. your friend, your cousin, your girlfriend, yeah. things creep into that working environment. Mm. I'm a session man now. Mm. It ain't nothing to do with bringing your friends and this and that. No, no. We go to work. Yeah. We work around the world. Mm -hmm. We go to work. The band I'm in has been in existence for 45 years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Still one of the top, yeah. in the top five in the history of the genre. I am very fortunate and very grateful to have an opportunity to have been with you. I've been 16 years, but I'm still from Hansworth where the band is from and everything. And these, mm. these chaps are like nine years older than me. Right. And I've looked yeah. up to them for many years and I still can't believe I've had the opportunity to be around these guys. That's cool. It's a match about how you go to work. Yeah. You know, so my performance ethics class deals with that. Mm. Not how mm. good you can play or like being at university was like amazing. <laughs> Phenomenal musicians, this and that, but they could not work together. That's interesting. Would you would you say that's the main secret to your broad success or are there any other elements that you bring into the mix? Well, I think, well, my background, where I'm from. Yeah. All right. Now there's a situation with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Yeah. And there are so many things that are coming to the fore, you know, like, my goodness, somebody treat somebody mm. like that. Oh, my. God. Yeah. I grew up with that. I can't even I can't even tell you. Mm. All the stories, the amount of things I could say that are all in the back of my mind yeah. because there's no one to talk to about it. Mm. If I said something to another friend of mine in Hansworth, whatever, I said, yeah, well, chances are they would have been grabbed by the same officers as me yeah. or chased by the same skinheads as I was chased by. Yeah. 
I've had guns to my head four, four times, five times in my life. Wow. And I'm a musician. Yeah. I've been taken for international drug smuggler, street drug pusher, wow. um, kidnapping. Wow. Murder. Wow. Yeah. And not all in Birmingham, surely. Not all in Birmingham. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was about to say, I know it purported to be bad in the 70s and 80s, but that's taken it a bit far. No, Birmingham, do you remember the Hansworth riots and stuff like that? Mm. Mm. They were looking for people. And then I ended up being at one place where they came in looking for some people, not knowing who I was. I just happened to be yeah. there. I had this T-shirt. I don't know if you've got any garments you had when you was a kid and it grew up with you and it just stretched to your same size as you're growing up. You know what I mean? <laughs> I had this T-shirt that I grew up with. And I remember I was, at, I was at my girlfriend's house at that time. And I said to her, you know, I grew up with this shirt. But the long story short is they went to her place because she was on the Citizens Band radio ah. and they were monitoring the radio yeah. um, the night before and the night before that. And because she'd spoken to a couple of people who they were looking for, they tracked her and went to her house to threaten her. Oh. And I was there. Oh, gosh. And they bust in, Whoa. took her to the kitchen, grilling her. All I remember is, Seeing the wall, the ceiling, the ground, mm. I was picked up from behind, spun right around, landed on my face. Whoa. And the guy did an arm lock. Oh, gosh. On me. You know, when they talk about, I can't breathe, yeah. you know, you have to have some kind of air to be able to say that. Of course. I couldn't breathe. My windpipe was completely blocked, my neck, everything. And I remember fading away. I saw mm. the mother of my daughter. She ran in, and the other CID guy. I was just like disappearing. Long story short to that. Um, I went, well, I was ripped. My clothes was ripped up. That's why I mentioned that shirt. It was totally ripped off. Just this neck. Mm. And I went to the police station and as soon as I went in, the desk sergeant, my God, what happened to you? I said, look, you know, it was this, that, 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 that. And he says, you know, if it's two of them, your words, you don't stand a chance. It, and yeah. that's yeah. one little story of many stories have been followed on the street, taken, grabbed. I could tell you a million stories. All these kind mm. of things. America, guns to my head. Yeah. I was being taken for murder yeah. in California. Mm. So your experiences, would you say, is it an Atlantic thing? Is there a divide? Or would you say that there is a, yeah. an equal problem that we don't see? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, when I grew up being in England, mostly, I could say, well, the racism, the prejudice and stuff here. But I'm a world traveller now. Mm. And I know what I see and experience around the world. Not everywhere. Mm. You know what I mean? Brazil. Beautiful. Love it. Absolutely fantastic. It's one of the most racist places. Man, I had guns to my head there for kidnapping. Mm. The air stewardess, who's my friend, very good friend, came to my concert. We had sold out shows. Mm. We had number ones in Brazil when I was with Pato Banton back in the day. Yeah, yeah. So Baby Come Back was a big hit and then we had others, other stuff. Yeah. I'm in the back of a car. We had two sold out shows, just finished MTV in Rio. Everything was just really fantastic. Wow. Uh, leaving the venue, mm -hmm. I'm in the back with my friend and we're hugging and talking like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When the cops, it was the military police that had done that, they pulled us over and they got me out and they had so many guns on me telling her, it's okay, we got him, you're safe now. And she's like, what are you talking about? Mm. Mm. I'm supposed to be kidnapping her. That's crazy. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is, that was the second time I had guns to my head in the same day. Mm. These are things that have led to me being able to still tour and to be able to navigate to do what it is I do. Yeah, yeah.
it is all a part of it. Mm. Because if I travelled with my own Hansworth mentality, Jamaican and Hansworth, man, when they had me on the floor in the States with all the guns in my head, in fact, the guy was about to blast me because I wouldn't get down on the floor. I had my hands off head. I'm like, let me get on the floor. Soon got myself together and said, oh, 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 no, no, no. I need to think different, change my approach, change it. And that's the only way I got out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the difficulty is that there is not just one rule book. So there's one rule book for Britain, but you go into America, suddenly there's guns in the mix. It's, it's a completely different rule book. You go maybe to Netherlands, there's a much more inclusive culture, I would assume. You know, it's much more open. Or London, you know, I assume, because it had this, this big Jamaican mm. culture, you know, th this influx in. And of course, that's what we're all proud of, you know, that that music culture yes. that Britain is so famous for, you know, th it was this mixture. But something happened in the last 20 years. And I don't know, has it gotten worse or has it just been opened? Has it been made explicit? Well, in England, the racism has changed mm -hmm. its face. Mm. So right. it's more covert and still exists. Right. I'm standing in the line, Heathrow Airport, and my band are in front of me and I'm at the back of the line. And behind me, I'm hearing these guys talking some crap about black people and stuff. Right, because they must have thought we were from Cameroon or something like that. And so they were speaking, not knowing that I understand. They were carrying on, glad they're going back to their country. Oh, we don't want them here, man. Look at them. All this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And this is in this day and age. Mm -hmm. So all I did was pull out my passport, which is British. I didn't say a word. And just put it over my shoulder like this. Then there was silence. Yeah. I put it back in my pocket. <laughs> and as I sojourn throughout the earth, from time to time, I come across people that are being racist. And, you know, especially in some countries where they didn't think that I spoke English. Yeah. You'd be amazed at things that I said. You know, like I said, it's changed its face. So some things don't come out the same way. Mm. When I did my teacher training, I remember the, the teacher did not like me. It was like you know, the black boy sitting there, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and I always remember she looked at all the other students I'm there mm. and this is a total reverse of what I'm used to normally I'm used to them looking at me and saying you blah da 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 this lady did this this is a level five qualification and if you don't have a level five you shouldn't be here she skipped you completely yeah so these things all go into the type of music that ethos mm -hmm. of the band that I work with currently yeah and highlighting these types of situations and trying to express what we feel. But we don't spend all that much time trying to express what we feel because we're trying to make people happy as well and trying to say, well, look, this happened to me. Yeah. I don't wish it on yeah. you. And I don't even really want you to know what it's like. Yeah. I actually don't really want you to know what it's like. Mm. Mm. So I'd spend more time promoting what things should be like. You know what I mean? So we bury it. Yeah. Yeah. Since George Floyd, there seems to be this movement within COVID lockdown. Do you have high hopes for that or are you worried it might just be lip service? Well, it's, it's going to be a lot of lip service. I'll tell you one good thing to watch is Eddie Grant. Yeah. Eddie Grant did a, there's something on YouTube that he did. He did a, a pretty interesting talk. Yeah. And he was saying that it doesn't matter. He said marching doesn't matter. Picketing and all that stuff doesn't matter. Right. Because this thing, the same thing still happens. I think it does matter mm. because now more people yeah, yeah. are aware. 
So the more people that are aware is the more we can proactively get together and try to get a better understanding of it, right? Yeah. In terms of eliminating them, mm. that's a whole different ballgame because where there are differences of people and cultures, there are going to be differences in how we treat each other. Mm. That's what I've realized and learned. Yeah. For example, in the Caribbean, if you come from St. Kitts or you come from Jamaica or Dominica, they have differences. We have differences in languages, yeah. slight differences in foods, what we would eat, um, differences in religions. Yeah. You know, remember, there's nobody in the Caribbean that's from the Caribbean. I mean, we're all from Africa or Europe or wherever else. Mm. You know, yeah. It didn't yeah, take yeah, long to kill off the, um, the indigenous mm. people and whatsoever. And if there's any traces of bloodline, it's, yeah. it's quite small. So you have Africans coming from different parts of Africa with different customs. We have the Indians. We are strongly influenced by Indian culture. My bloodline is African and Indian because of the indentured labor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's going to be differences. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think the differences will go away. Like I'm from Hansworth. We had top Hansworth and bottom Hansworth. That's before we had gangs. And, <laughs> and then there was a gang yeah. war, whatever that really divided. Mm. So there's always going to be like, we grew up on this street, you grew up on that street. Mm. When it comes to actually because of colour and even your accent, Corolla, well, I don't know what you may have experienced just because of your accent here in England. Yeah. Mm. So in terms of Black Lives Matter, it is important that people are hearing what's going on now. Yeah. It is very important. So it will help. Mm -hmm. Will it eradicate racism? I don't think so. But it is a good step mm. because it is better to know mm. and to work towards. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm hoping that, especially when we look at America, in some ways you could argue that it's made such a progressive start forward with Obama But every yeah. push forward then needs a societal step backwards. And mm. then you see what comes after Obama. But that might mean that immense push that went forward, you know, that it hopefully doesn't go completely backward. But, you know, is there something similar happening here that we've pushed so much forward mm. in terms yeah. of diversity and culture and, of course, you know, creative industries that we're now getting a sort of pushback. But, you know, we just got to keep on making music together. <laughs> That's a really nice way of putting it, Carola, actually. Yeah. I think that's really good. That's right. We have to keep making music together. Um, mm. All right. When I was 19, I left England to go and do a tour. That was the first time I actually came across people that looked like the majority in England mm. that didn't chase me, didn't say bad things. Mm. They actually came to the concerts and paid to see what I was doing in the basement all these years in the name of forming a band and stuff. Mm, yeah. And I thought, these white people are not the same. What's going on? <laughs> so then I was in Scandinavia yeah, for yeah. so long. I used to hang out in Christiana <laughs> yeah. and in Denmark. Yeah. This is not the mm. same. Yeah. And the two pivotal things in my life that have made me who I am today, mm. in either order, music and Rastafari. I'm a Rastaman. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. The music afforded me the opportunity to travel to other places mm. and see faces that look like the faces that have chastised me all of my life here. Mm. But these ones were very welcoming and travel distances to come and see me do what I do. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah. 
that changed my view of people because my society at the time, the people that were there, they didn't like me. Mm. Stay in Hansworth, don't go too far. Mm. Might have a problem, which I often did. And Rastafari taught me about tolerance because within my community, within the Jamaican community, I'll teach you something here. Mm. When my mom was in Jamaica, Rastas were considered as scum of the earth. Really? No one, ah, this is it. Wow. Nobody liked Rastas. Rastas were talking about back to Africa. And remember, I told you our parents came to support the motherland. Yeah. So with colonialism, that brought new ideas, right? Indoctrination. Yeah. So yeah. we were not allowed as Africans to speak our languages anymore. We had to speak English when we were brought in as slaves and stuff. So that whole African identity, apart from being black and suffering under the whip in the same way, mm. in the Caribbean, the African side was wiped out, so to speak. Only some people yeah. still had the ideology of, I'm still an African. So after years, people were looking at coming to the motherland. Mm. The Rasta man said, I am an African. I just happened to be in Jamaica. Yeah. And it was a choice, and this is my words, mm -hmm. we look up to the Queen of England or look within. Mm. Instead of going back, you know, 100 years, let's go back that four or 500 years and look within. Yeah. The Rastaman reclaimed his true identity mm. by going back to the roots. Because history, you can look back as far as you want mm. and people always flick the pages to what suits them. Yeah. There is nothing in the past 400 years that suits mm -hmm. us. So let's just flip back that extra page. Mm -hmm. Okay, oh, there I am. Yeah. Jamaica has more churches per capita than anywhere else in the world. Check it out. Really? In other words, <laughs> Christianity, um, Islam, Judaism, everything is in Jamaica. Mm. And with regards to Christianity, because of the Spanish, the Spanish was in Jamaica. That's why my family's from Ochi Rios. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are Spanish town. That's when my father passed away eventually. The Spanish were there too. Oh. So Christianity had such a strong foothold in Jamaica. When the Rasta man was then talking about back to Africa, the other people, the educated people, hmm. the academics, you know, the society people, they were like, uh-uh, that's backwards. We're moving forward now. So... They didn't like what the Rastaman was saying. So the Rastaman said, all right, let me remove myself from here. I'll go to the hills, plant my own food, live my own life, pray to God, play mm -hmm. the, the music, the drums. Because we have what we call Rastaman chant, Nayabingi chant. Yeah. And that is like, is that the heartbeat? All right. Yeah. So we stayed away, but they would still come and chastise us. So whenever Rastas was walking in the city or whatever, it was almost a decree the police could arrest the Rastaman, beat him, cut his hair, mm. kill him. Mm. Or maybe you get surviving, you get taken to jail. That was the situation. So when my parents came to England and years later, I'm suddenly talking about, yeah, man, Rasta. They were like, what? Mm. <laughs> All of a sudden, mm. I couldn't go to my friend's houses anymore. I had my brothers telling me, look, man, you've got to please mom. What's wrong with you? Why are you talking about Rasta back to Africa? <laughs> I said, because I'm an African. I recognize I'm an African. Right, and I know who I am. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a lot of black people can't look in a white person's face. They're still doing mm. this. Go to New Orleans and people are still walking around like this. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. 
that yeah. I, I'm holding my head up because I've been chased, because I've been beat, mm. and because I've seen mm. it going on yeah. for so long. These all form part of my character. But the good thing, like I says, music gave me an opportunity to see that not mm. all people are the same. Yeah, yeah. And Rastafari taught me tolerance because mm-hmm. in my own community, I was mm. being tolerated yeah. as a Rasta amongst Caribbean people. Mm. The church didn't like mm. you. Yeah, yeah. Friends didn't like you because you're a Rasta. Yeah. And so I learned about tolerance of other people. It's amazing how deep that systemic racism goes and still goes. Yeah, it's deep. So what, what led you to higher education? Yeah, all right. I went into top class in secondary school and mm. um, I ended up getting expelled. In fact, what it was, everybody else was in for six subjects um, for the end of school. I was in for nine because I was in top class. Right? Mm. And all of a sudden, near the end of the race, I just pff, lost it. Came out of top mm. class, couldn't be asked, hanging out with mm. friends and this and that. Then I just was no longer interested. That indicates that your experience of that college level and school level wasn't as positive. So what made you then decide to study up to MA level? I always imagined that I would have been going to university and all that. There weren't so many of us going to university when I was younger, coming from the community yeah. that I'm from. Right. When I started touring with Pat Banton, we started doing the States a lot and started going on the college oh, right. circuit. Yeah. And then I felt like I was missing something because I'd love those gigs and I loved the brain cells of those kids. They came, they enjoyed the reggae. I'd go to the frat houses and hang out a bit and, you know what I mean? And yeah. I just always wanted to have that experience. That was what my dream was with regards to going to university, to have that type of experience, mm. that level of qualification to be a graduate and then to see what comes from that. With those guys in America with the sororities and stuff, you know, they always have their beta kappa kai and blah, blah, blah. And so they have their their bonds for mm-hmm. life. I always looked at that like, wow, a network for life. That always made me think, yeah, I do want to go. And I want that experience because school never necessarily gave me that mm. experience with things that I went through as a young person in England. Mm. So by the time I finally got around to it in my 40s, <laughs> right, I was very disappointed, even though I couldn't behave like a 20-odd-year-old, mm. right? But that yeah. I was just disappointed in the experience that I had at the university. I went to South Birmingham College first. Fantastic. Mm. Right. Um, and I, that was a choice as well. I think the good thing about going to university as a mature student, I made better choices. Yeah, absolutely. Than being forced into, and you have to do this or else, or, you know what I mean? When I was younger, I wanted everything now. But when I got older, you know, Mm -hmm. because I needed something to fall back on as well. Because I traveled the world, Mm. right, as a reggae musician, Mm. and there's not that much money in it you got to be in the pop charts. And even then, it depends on what your position is within mm. the ensemble. So all these things, yeah. which I didn't realise at first, no, you know, no. when you get older, it, you start thinking, hold on, well, I'm not getting anything back from this. Mm. And I'm coming from the time when there weren't no internet. Mm. I exist now. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, and I still have to monetize that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Right? I have to catch up now to monetize all that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, um, 
I realized the need to create that support system for myself. So, you know, I better go to school and I really wanted to. So that's how I was able to do that and travel. Mm. When I got to that time, I said, right, I have a choice. I either go to uni and my other thought was mm-hmm. go to college where I knew the lecturers. Some of them were from Hansworth and we had a good connection. And I knew that if I went there and I had situations touring, whatever, there would be more leniency. They would work yeah. with me more, mm-hmm. but that would only be at H&D. Mm-hmm. I thought do the H&D, slow down, mm-hmm. make the contacts and go from there as opposed to go do straight academics no performance or nothing and i made a decision in the morning i drove out the road if i turn left i'm going uni if i turn right i'm going to college and i sat at the traffic lights huh. and the lights changed and my right hand went down i went to college huh. so I, I did the two years and then went to wolverhampton one day i am going to be dr amlak tafari hmm. what you now have to consider is whether or not you want a nickel and dime me over one year's money, you're telling me I have to do two years, is one year's money more important to you than me doing a bachelor's, then a master's, then a PhD within your institution? If that's more important to you, I will take my custom elsewhere. Now it's Mm. your choice. And everybody looked at him. Yes. We've talked about this before, you know, in our round, this notion that we in the universities, we're moving to something where we have to be much more what I call permeable. University and the industry has to work much more closely together. In the music section, we're doing actually already quite well. So a lot of degrees are, of course, where you bring the industry professionals in, but also where you have these partnerships from university to the industry where it's much more fluid. It's not as if you just go to university and once you're finished and you find your job it's rather doing your two or three years you start having these connections because hopefully those individuals who are part of the staff at the university also have the connections and in some ways you know i think that that's the theme that got us three together to do this podcast hmm. all of us have you guys have much more industry experience and you work at uni- universities where actually that is valued <laughs> You know, Russ and Tim, you know, this, this notion of... We, we value <laughs> no it. words came out of my mouth. <laughs> I'm editing that bit out. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever opportunities came up and stuff, nothing came my way. Yeah. I had a nasty experience there. They tried to get me out and I lost sleep over it. It was really bad. Mm. The best thing that happened to me there, Corolla. We talked uh-huh. and we had ideas. <laughs> The approach that Corolla had, we talked about the industry and the academic side being together and being international, having all these different programs that could unite our musicians yeah. and bring them into academia. Mm. You know, I'm the only person that came out with the first. Huh. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that helped? Uh-uh. It was like, yo. So when I went on to the masters, they were still trying like, mm-mm. It wasn't good. Mm. That's crazy. Oh, what a shame. I know that in the higher education sector in general, there has been over the last 10 years quite a focus of all staff getting a PhD. Nowadays, it's actually more difficult to get into academia without a PhD than it ever was before. Mm, Impossible. In some ways, the sector has actually forgotten 
what, why are we doing this? You know, is it because of a named degree or is it about the actual content, you know, that we're researchers, we're practitioners, we're innovators, we're doing stuff that nobody else has ever done before? Mm. Then it shouldn't matter if there's a title there. No. It shouldn't matter. Going back to my background mm. and what our parents used to say, and my dad said to me, I was sitting on his knee, and my dad said, boy, him say, this is how we talk to me. Make sure you pass your exam. Hmm. If you don't pass your exam, you don't have no father. And he's not talking about just at seven years old. He's talking about getting a qualification. They couldn't tell us what qualifications because they didn't have those. Uh, you know yeah. what I mean? But they were just saying, you're in yeah. England now, mate, and we've invested in you. Cried, I cried, I cried. I never forget it. You know, I cried my eyes out. And I don't know how it was, you know, in Jamaica, but certainly Britain is hung up on exam cultures, you know, and, and that, of course, is within the university sector as well. I spent just recently six months in Finland, which was absolutely extraordinary. And of course, their education system is now heralded as, you know, one of the best in the world. Uh -huh. And they just don't have exams until the last year in school. Uh, they don't have homework They they just, you know, do stuff whilst they're at work. They they allow their kids to play more and yeah. they wow. become much more passionate about learning than our kids, which need to do one exam after the other. This ties really neatly into your experience in the the system in America. But you were saying they can come and go as they please. And this all links back to A.S. Neal and Summerhill School in Britain and the whole notion that if you want to take a qualification, cool, take it. If you don't, if you want to go and play in the garden, do that. And then, come, you know, you're going to get a more focused student like yourself going back to do your MA. I'm going to do better than all these guys and you have done. Being away from England and the mentality here, is what made me realize the significance of my qualifications from another perspective. It's transferable mm. in more ways than I actually thought. Mm. So it's not just the subject matter, but it's the level of accreditation, which then makes people look at you a certain way. Mm. They measure you with a certain amount of intellect, because if you could have endured the regime of studying and that self-reliance and self-motivation stuff, then all of a sudden you are a particular type of person. Mm. I've noticed that and I recognized it before. So that was another thing that fueled me to get this level of qualification because mm. I was going to do um, a PGCE mm. after my bachelor's and I realized, no, go for the PhD. But then when things turn around, get the master's anyway, because that talks for me more. Yeah. Gosh, it's interesting because in some ways what I just mentioned and taking that together with what you said, actually the ideal situation is, and I'm going to ask you the question of doing the MA, has it changed your musical practice? We should probably make it clear that he's shaking his head. Yeah, yeah, just, I was just going to say. Because <laughs> we're not recording the video. So Amrok's uh, shaking his head vigorously. Yeah. It's not a nod. It's, it's not a, a nod, it's the other one. When I went to university, in terms of what I already do, it didn't do anything for me at all. Mm. It helped me, don't get me wrong. You know, university helped me to recognize if you don't complete, you don't have anything. And university actually helped me to develop that performance ethics class that I do. Because of that first guy that told me that I'm not going to be able to do this and whatever, I ended up taking classes that I didn't want. Because he steered me away from the performance classes 
because I was going to let people down if I have to go on tour and they formed a band there and mm. whatever. Right. And so one of the lecturers I bumped into one day, he said to me, why are you not in my class? I said, well, I was advised that blah, blah, blah. So I took two other classes. He says, no, 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 you'll be all right. Just come to my class, man. <laughs> and this is like how many weeks into the course. And I went into his class. I saw two girls singing with a microphone down almost by their waist. Singing and it was feeding back. And in front of them was an amplifier pointing towards them, a guitar. And mm-hmm. behind the amplifier was a guy leaning against the wall, the James Dean one that leaning like this, with his foot on the wall, playing the heck out of the guitar. He's a damn good player as well. So loud. And then the PA system, the, the PA speakers that were in the room, one was pointing towards him here, and the other one was pointing towards the drummer and the other guitarist and the <laughs> keyboard player down at the bottom of the room. And the drummer was facing him, kicking the hell out of the drums. They were mates, yeah? Mm. So I walked in and I was like, wow, I didn't know what to say. And so they stopped playing. They looked at me. Like, Are you the new guy then? Are you the guy that's just coming from New York? I went, New York? Uh, I've never been to America in my life. I've never left the country. <laughs> anyway, we're playing this song. So, oh, okay. Then. I went to play and then, I said, hold on, guys. Do you think you might want to turn that speaker around? And maybe if you turn that down, then these girls could perhaps be able to say a little bit of fine adjustments. And they all looked at me like, what? Who do you think? What? I said, I was just thinking. And you know what? That was the end of the class. <laughs> they went back to the teacher. They told him all sorts of stuff. He came to me in the corridor and says, hey, I'm lucky. Okay. I said, yeah, fine. But he was friends with them. Mm. Uh, and I thought about it. How the heck can you have third-year students mm. with a foot on the wall, leaning back, playing like that, and he ain't teaching yeah. them nothing? And then they all had it against me, this and that. I went through all that silly stuff until one day the guitarist found out that my endorsement, I was carving, it's now turned to keys, carving guitars and amplifiers and all that. When he found out that I'm there, same booth as Steve Vai and all that, he was like, then he passed the word round. He's all right, you know. Then all of a sudden I was all right. <laughs> maybe if I was doing composition or jazz, maybe there would have been something there mm. for me, something more. Yeah. So speaking about the accreditation, clearly you had a view to end up doing a PhD or certainly yes. the MPhil. What's happened there? And uh, is there still that aspiration? It still exists. <laughs> well, what happened was um, I went to a couple of universities. But everybody was just too expensive. Everybody wanted 20 grand off the bat. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was like, I just couldn't afford it. And it, what that did as well, it threw me back into a mindset of when I'd just finished school after I went to sixth form college, I decided I wanted to go do art. So I went to Sutton and it was still a bit posh at those days and stuff. And um, when I went to the art department and sat down for my first class and they were like, okay, so we're going to need you all to get certain brushes and this and that and that and the 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 purchase list that i was given Mm. i couldn't afford that it was over before it started i thought that with the first and with my industry experience right somebody's going to say look let's make something work because i wanted to do like Mm. part documentary maybe and i was so excited with the americans saying oh my gosh they're going to snap you up no but i just wasn't getting that here i was quite disillusioned so it didn't happen mm. yet. <laughs> Do you think a lot of that is based on a kind of snobbery? Yeah. 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 That's what I'm hearing. It's such a shame. 
Yeah, it, it, it is. It seems to stand in the way of doing so much great work mm. that could have happened and can still happen. I was so keen mm. yeah. to link, mm. you know, the academic side of everything yeah. and expose it because it that serves its purpose. You know, I mean, to be learning more about your instrument, more about theory, more about technology, yeah, yeah. more about how to write essays and to, to compose essays, or everything that university has. And yeah. I mean, don't think I didn't get anything from it. Of course I did. Mm. I was so keen to expose academia to the world and to expose academics to actual musicians. <laughs> yeah. Because you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think that it would have been such an interesting PhD practice, mm. you know, mm. especially with your background, to weave that in for others also to understand yes. how your practice is different from, you know, the, the more sort of classical British pop rock Yeah. you know, kind of music of doing yeah. things and how the mm -hmm. industry mm -hmm. is different in your sector. You know, there are loads yeah. of interesting questions and lines of inquiries that are the potential. Yeah. But I think I'm always somebody who defends the <laughs> higher education sector, I have to say. I'm always the one who's passionate about the universities. And I think one of the key issues that we come up against, and that seems to also be the issue, is that we started this fee-based system here in this country. Yeah. And then that means that, you know, and of course, in other countries, you don't pay for a PhD. Yes, mm -hmm. you have to sustain yourself, you have to, but you don't have to pay such extraordinary fees which create a class system right away. Yeah. Immediately. And so we have created this private good rather than this public good of, you know, these knowledge institutions mm -hmm. which serve the community to further humanity. Are these high highfalutin kind mm -hmm. of ideals? Of course they are. Uh, they can work in other countries. Why can't we do it here? Why won't we do it here, I think is the question. Yeah, you know, yeah. like I says. My fire is not out. Hmm. However, you can tell that for me, it, mm. it's, it's taken a bit of a beating. With, yeah. It didn't validate what I do, but it, it validated in academic terms my existence for so long mm. as a mm. current practitioner. And even that said, you know, my whole life is like an ethnography. <laughs> I am the culture yeah. of my music. Yeah. And it has so much purpose and so much, you know, potency mm. to be shared. Carl, you remember how passionate I was about this? And even the language, the academic language, being a Jamaican, and even that, I was so into academia, like, yo, this is... Yeah, and I do remember we had also discussions. I think the times are different now, which is a bit of a shame, but we had discussions, can we form uh, partnerships between Jamaican mm. colleges and mm. British universities, which would have been so great. That would have been fantastic. And of course, in some ways, with all of that thing which happened since Brexit, with this increase of closing down borders, you know, it, yeah. it seems to fade away further and further from us to have these possibilities. But, you know, I do think it will come again, but we just have to survive this time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amalek. It's been amazing. It's been great to mm. talk to you. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to episode six of Sound Learnings. Sound Learnings is produced by Tim Kampfer, Russ Hepwesoyer and Carola Bohm. Editing, mixing and music composition is by me, Tim Kampfer. Russ Hepwesoyer does the mastering and Carola Bohm does the show notes and social media. Sound Learnings is hosted by Acast and if you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review or give us a shout on your favourite social media platform. It does really help. We have some other great conversations on their way. For example... 
the electronica musician and academic Kirsten Hermes, and mastering engineer Katie Davini. And hopefully, these will not take eight months to produce. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye.